not necessarily the circumstances of our lives or what it is that we can do on our own. Let's pray together before we look into the Word. Father, thank You for a great reminder in song and the ability that You have given to us uh, to gather our voices together so that we can worship You. Jesus, into this room, uh, men and women have, uh, have come in, and some of them feeling like they've had to drag themselves here because of the weight of the world. Uh, others of them have come in looking for connection and, uh, and, and the next step in their spiritual journey. Uh, Father, I just pray that wherever we find ourselves on the spectrum uh, from just starting to look at who Jesus is to uh, those that have been believers for many, many decades, uh, that You would show us the truth that's in Your Word, that You'd fill us with Your Spirit, that You'd guide us to faithfulness. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, this morning, if you got your Bibles, I hope you do, I encourage you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Uh, if you are a little bit new to Bible study, uh, uh, move over to the second part of the Bible. Uh, you got the Old Testament and then the New Testament, and then the first four books of the New Testament are all named for the guys who wrote those particular accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we'll be in John chapter 12. I've been walking through the Gospel of John now for quite a while, and, and we've now reached this point uh, where when we tip over next week into chapter 13, for the rest, uh, uh, for the, the balance of the book, we're going to be looking primarily at the, at the week uh, that Jesus lives prior to the crucifixion and a lot of His teachings there. But there's one last passage here in chapter 12, verses 37 uh, through 50, that I think serve as great summaries about uh, a couple of important issues. Now, yesterday, how many of you, anybody, did anybody go to the River Regatta yesterday? Anybody? Anybody? I see a few hands here, there. Yep. Uh, it was hot. It was Florida winter, uh, which means it was 80 degrees. And, uh, and, and so yesterday, Angie and I, we got up, we got ready. Uh, well, we got up and piddled around for a long time, and then eventually we got ready because uh, it was Saturday, and then we went down to the, to the River Regatta, and, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, there were, um, there were a lot of food trucks there yesterday, and I think approximately it was like 1,732 food trucks. I mean, they were everywhere. Uh, it was like every food truck in the state of Florida must have been yesterday in Bradenton and Palmetto. And, and at one point, um, Angie looked over at me and she said, uh, well, it's getting close to, to noon. Are you hungry? Uh, to which I responded, I'm always hungry. It's my superpower, okay? Uh, this, this, I'm always hungry. And so, uh, so we, we started looking for something to, to eat, which was not hard. And so I went over to this one particular uh, barbecue place, and I looked at their menu, and I said, that looks good, and give it to me. And so they gave me this sandwich that it was like this big. It was this gigantic pile. It was perfect for a carnivore, all right? It was this giant pile of meat that was smothered in melted cheese and barbecue sauce in between Texas toast, and was, you know, there's, there's, there was not a vegetable to be seen. It was a beautiful, it was, it was awesome. It was wonderful. And so we went and we sat down, and Angie, as uh, sweet and, and cute and demure as she is, of course, she had gone and gotten Kona ice, all right? And so she's just sitting there, you know, being very, you know, careful not to get any drip anything anywhere, and over, I'm over there going, oh, 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 oh. And, and so I ate this gigantic sandwich, and about three-quarters of the way through the sandwich, I thought to myself, self, you should stop. Like, 
you should stop right now. But I was like, but this, and so my other self said, but this is really good. And so I, you know, I ate the whole thing. It was all gone, ate the whole thing. So then last night we had some family in town uh, that was visiting. And so, of course, what do you do when you have family in town and you live at a coastal community? You go out to eat. And so we went out to eat, and we, uh, we were looking at the menu, and, and uh, myself said to myself, uh, you should eat a salad. And so I turned to myself, and I said, we don't like salads. Go be quiet. And uh, so I ordered a big plate of food, and, and, it, and it came, and uh, well, of course, bread came first, and uh, you know, well, we all love bread, uh, unless you're, you know, something horribly wrong with you. And... Um, and so then I started eating again, and about halfway through uh, this particular meal, then myself said to myself, you should stop. Do you feel how you feel right now? I was like, I do, but I'm not. I'm just going to keep going. And so I, I muscled through because, again, this is my superpower. Um, and so then about 3 o'clock this morning, myself woke myself up <laughs> and said, see what you've done to us? You know, there is this certain uh, stubbornness uh, to us. I mean, I was just not, I mean, come on, think of the poor children in Africa. We can't let this food go to waste. That's what my mother always told me. And, and there is a certain stubbornness to us that we get intractably stuck in a, a particular course of action that we are unwilling to divert from. I mean, I, I was going to eat that barbecue sandwich with all of its cheesy goodness. And I was going to eat that giant plate of food with all of its yumminess because it was there. Because it was, I mean, I was bought into this thing. I was completely committed. And there are these times in our lives where our stubbornness reveals something incredible about us. And in this particular passage I want to read to you this morning, there is a certain spiritual stubbornness that is uncovered by Jesus' message and by his activities uh, that reveal something actually quite dangerous about the human condition, more than just gluttony for which I need to repent from. So here in John chapter 12, I'm going to begin reading in verse 37 and go through the end of the chapter. It says, even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. Now, so the quick recap is, remember, the, the last couple of chapters, this is the episode where Jesus' very good friend Lazarus has died, and Jesus has, has resurrected him from the dead. This is something that was a very public, kind of happened in the public eye. Everybody knows about this. The chief priests are so mad that people are following Jesus because Lazarus has gotten up from the dead. They're, they're not just planning on killing Jesus. They're also plotting to also kill Lazarus. But it says, even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, who said, and now he quotes from the Old Testament, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe, because Isaiah also said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. And Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise from God. 
Jesus cried out, The one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Uh, in this particular passage, I think that there are two great summaries that we need to, to take note of. The first great summary is who we are. When you look at verses 37 through 43, uh, there is uh, some insight into who we are as human beings and how it is that we can get stuck into, uh, into a very similar position that the people that were witnessing and hearing uh, about what Jesus was doing was there. And, and I think inside of this idea of who we are, maybe there's three little ideas that, that I can highlight for you. The first about who we are is that we can be hard-hearted by our sin. Here in, in this passage, as he quotes from the book of Isaiah, it is this idea of who is going to believe and about people whose eyes get blinded and hearts that get hardened. Uh, the, pastor friend of mine out in Austin, Texas, his name is Matt Carter, wrote a, a commentary on the, on the Gospel of John, and, and he describes this particular passage as a theology of unbelief. Now, there is a place at which uh, we tip, uh, there is a tipping point where we go from a position that is ready and malleable, and we are soft toward the, toward the reception of the Gospel, to a place where we harden our hearts. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, there in verse 38, where he says, "'Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed?' In Old Testament vernacular, the message is something that it sounds very familiar to us. It is focused on teachings. And so here, Jesus is quoting, this, or this passage is being quoted about Jesus to indicate who has heard our message, uh, who has believed our message. So who's heard the, the message of Jesus, who's heard the message from Jesus, who's heard these claims of truth that Jesus has made. And then he says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In Old Testament vernacular, the arm of the Lord represented the actions of God. And so, and so here, the, the, the gospel writer John is making this commentary about the, the crowd around Jesus that it's like, there are all these people who have heard the message about Jesus and have heard the words directly from Jesus, and there's all these people who have witnessed the works of Jesus. They have watched as He has healed blinded eyes, and He's cast out demons, and He's even raised a, a friend of His from the dead. And even though God offers plenty of proof, not everyone is going to believe. I believe, I think that, that this statement, uh, this, this commentary that John gives to us about the crowd is a statement on human culpability, about accountability, about our own responsibility, that God wants you and invites you to come over into the side of faith and belief, and He gives you every reason to do so by the message of Jesus and by the works of Jesus. 
But there are going to be people who are just going to be intractably stuck at a place of unbelief, and when that happens, God will give you over to an unbelieving heart. And when you have an unbelieving heart, the only option left is condemnation. We could, we could pose it in this kind of way. The preaching of God's Word evokes a response, and for those who are in love with their sin, it evokes a hardened heart. If you love your sin, then you, your heart just continuously grows calloused against the claims that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the one who is risen from the dead, the one who has come into the world filled with darkness in order to shed abroad His light of life and of truth. And the preaching of God's Word is always going to evoke a response from people. Now, I get it that every once in a while, I kind of, while I'm up here in this spot and I'm pacing around like I'm a, a tiger, you know, caged up, um, I, and, and I pan around the crowd, every once in a while, and it's just every once in a while, I, I catch somebody maybe not focused, uh, maybe nodding off a little bit or in a full-blown sleep coma, uh, every once in a while. And, and it's not that, um, and, and that's, an, uh, that's a response. That is the, that's the, the provocation of a, of a response. That is the, I'm bored with this. You know, when is he going to stop droning on? He keeps promising these 30-minute messages, and we never get them. It never happens. Right, Doug? They do happen. Like once every day, whatever. Um, and then there are other times when I, I, when I pan across the crowd, and I, and I get what, you know, what's happening right now is that you're, you're focused, you're locked in, you're listening, people are jotting down notes, they're wanting to know what comes next, they want to understand the passage and, and hear how does this apply into my life, what am I supposed to do with this? The preaching of God's Word, the presentation of God's Word, whether it's from a, a church platform, pulpit, stage area, or whether it's across your coffee table to a friend that you've invited over in order to share the gospel or to share some kind of encouragement, the, the proclamation, the delivery of God's message is going to evoke a response from people. And for those people that are in love with their sin, it evokes a hardened heart because the message of Christ crashes against a love for sin. Uh, this is illustrated very well in the Old Testament when Moses goes and he confronts the Pharaoh because he's got all of the Hebrew people enslaved, and he keeps, he keeps coming to him saying, the Lord has told you to let his people go. And it says eventually that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But it wasn't just like God zapped him out of, out of heaven with a lightning bolt that suddenly turned his heart of flesh into a heart of stone. The Pharaoh continuously was rejecting the authority of God. And so eventually God gives us over to what it is we desperately want. If we really want rebellion, eventually he says, all right, well, big boy, if that's what you think you can handle in this world and in the next life, then that's what you... That, this is the choice you have made. And, and so the question to, that we have to face is, what will be your response to the message and the work of Jesus? Is your response going to be one of kind of laissez-faire, blasé, well, I'll worry about that later, or is it going to be I completely reject it and I don't want to have anything to do with it, I can have a religious life and I don't have to be surrendered to Jesus? Or is it that you recognize that Jesus is the true and the living Son of God risen from the dead? That we all are, there is going to be a, a provocation of a response from you. 
So who we are is that it starts that we have to recognize we can be hard-hearted by our sin. But there is a, there's a follow-up place here in this passage where it reminds us that we can be inspired, though, by God's glory. So John, the gospel writer, quotes the, the prophet Isaiah in two different places here, there in verse 38, and then verses 40 uh, through, uh, or, or verse 40. And then there's this little statement there in verse 41 that is kind of commentary, but really critical to our understanding of kind of the condition of who we can be. There in verse 41, it said, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Isaiah is one of the few people in the Scriptures it records for us who had some kind of vision or, or had some kind of moment where he saw the glory of God. Uh, Isaiah has this vision in the temple of the glory of God filling the temple and, and, and being overwhelmed by that moment. And Isaiah has a specific motivation for his message as to why people should not be hard-hearted, why people should not turn away from God. But Isaiah could very well speak about God's glory because he understood God's holiness. In that encounter that Isaiah has with the, the vision of God's glory in the temple, Isaiah had one very specific reaction to seeing and witnessing the glory of God. It was a declaration, it was a confession of how sinful he was. I mean, he looked into the glory of God, and what he sees is something that is otherworldly. It is holy. It is separate from us. It is above us. It is beyond us. It is better than us. And because he sees the glory of God, he understands that there is a holiness to God. And so the only way to rightly understand God's judgment is to understand God's holiness. This is what the people, the crowd was missing about who Jesus was. Uh, they were treating him like he was just one more vagabond, he was just one more rabbi, he was just one more religious teacher, rather than seeing that, this was, that he was the very holy and glorious one that was sent by the Father to earth. And, and Isaiah, we can follow in his path rather than the path of the crowd that gets hard-hearted by their sin, but instead we can follow in the path with Isaiah that says, I have witnessed the glory of God and I understand the holiness of God, so I understand the depth of judgment that ought to be against my sin and our sin, and I would rather be embraced by God than in, to be embraced by the world. But very sadly, John has to give us another commentary here about who we are. You know, so we can be hard-hearted by our sin, we can be inspired by God's glory, or we can be pressured by the world. It says there in verses 42 and 43, nevertheless, many did believe in Him, even among the rulers. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue. And then verse 43 is just a shot to the heart for all of us. For they loved human praise more than the praise from God. The world and your ego will pressure you to believe, but keep it to yourself. I, I um, had the opportunity when I was a young man uh, to go to one of our Baptist universities. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. I went to Samford University my junior and senior year, uh, stayed on campus and got my master's degree there as well. But I remember moving on to campus. I had gone to a junior college for a couple of years, 
uh, where we had a, a really healthy Baptist uh, campus ministry, Bible study together, and worship services together. I was a part of a really healthy church growing up. And, and, and so, my first couple of years in college was a, a time of, of really just some wonderful growth in my spiritual walk as I was preparing to go into ministry vocationally. And, and so then I landed at Sanford University thinking that I was going to walk into just this panacea of, you know, spirituality, and, you know, I was going to feel the Shekinah glory of God as I stepped into the chapel. And, and, but what I remember stepping onto the campus and getting involved with campus life is that at Sanford during those days, it's not, I don't think necessarily the same now, but in those days, it, it, was, um, it was completely acceptable to be a Christian, just don't act like one. You know, so be a Christian, but don't be a killjoy was kind of the, the vibe that went around campus because there were a group of students that had given in to this idea that it was, it was one thing to decide that Jesus really is the Messiah, you know, He's the Son of the living God, someone to whom I should surrender my life to is a completely other thing to actually live like it. You know, because instead it was much easier to live a comfortable life, you know, where, you, you know, mom and dad are helping to fund you at a, at a university and, you know, you got your dorm room and you got all your buddies and you can, you know, party the way you want to, live the way you want to, and have this facade of being spiritual. You know, I, 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 I believe, but I don't have to live a confessional kind of life. And you and I have to make that decision as grown-ups. I mean, this is not just college student stuff. This is grown-up stuff as to whether or not we're going to hide our confession because what we really like is the praise of people around us, it is that we really want uh, power in the political realm because what we really want is influence in the business culture. What we really want is to make sure that those family members are not, you know, that they don't get offended by our Christian faith. That we want to make sure that we can be around the right people and date the right people and hang out with the right people in such a way as that nobody's going to get offended by our faith. Well, your faith is a Offensive. The gospel is offensive. The, the Bible is very clear that the gospel is a stumbling block. It is a scandalous statement that says the people who are outside of Christ are actually dead in their sins, and the people inside of Christ have found life in Him, and it's this constant invitation of stop being dead. Well, that's offensive to people that are dead in their sins, that people that love their sin, people that love their flesh, people that love the world. And so there's real pressure. This is not pretend pressure. This is a real thing. And so, who are we in this passage? Where do you find yourself? Are you part of the crowd that has grown hard-hearted by your sin because you have loved your sin more than you have loved Christ? Or is it that you are with Isaiah where you are inspired by the very glory of God because you've come to a knowledge of, how ho of His holiness and, and the depth of judgment against sin and that God has made the decision to cross the great divide so that you could find salvation? Or is it that you find yourself in this kind of no man's land that you do believe in Jesus, you just you get nervous about telling people and because you don't want them to be offended and you don't want to cut off relationships? Well, the only, uh, the, uh, the only answer uh, to these negative summaries about who we are is to come face-to-face -face with the other part of this passage, this summary of who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus makes a declaration about who He is there in verses 44 through 50. Uh, he starts out by saying that, it, that John describes it, that Jesus cried out. 
Now, if you notice quickly and, and, and carefully as you read through the Gospels, you'll see that there are times when Jesus speaks and when Jesus cries out, when Jesus declares. These are all important translation words to take note of. This is a place where Jesus gets impassioned about this. This is not Jesus kind of mumbling over in the corner to just a couple of the, uh, the apostles. This is Jesus making an impassioned declaration, crying out to the crowd that's around Him. And He says, the one who believes in Me believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. And the one who sees Me sees Him who sent Me. Jesus is going to tell us some truth about who He is. The first truth that He tells us is that He's equal with the Father. This is an unpopular characterization uh, in Jesus' day, and it's an unpopular uh, uh, position in our day, that, that Jesus is equal with the Father. It, it puts Jesus above all the other religious systems and leaders of the world. It, it, it says Jesus was not just here to give us a good moral example or to deliver truth from God. Jesus is claiming equality with God. And if Jesus is, is claiming equality with God, then this, this goes right after our hard-heartedness because we love our sin more than we love Him. I mean, think about the declaration and the decision you're making in your life when you decide that you love your sin more than you love Jesus who is equal with the Father. What a horrible, mistaken decision that we make at that point. Following Jesus is the decision to follow the Godhead who is there. Because belief in Jesus is bigger than just being entertained by a Las Vegas magician. It's bigger and it's more than trusting in a skilled physician. It's more than getting guidance from an insightful counselor. Uh, Jesus claims equality with the Father. But he also says that he is light for the world. He, he says this again, and he says it in several times throughout the Gospels, uh, that he is the one, uh, he says in verse 46, I've come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. So he makes this commentary, you are in darkness. That's his standard operating procedure. That's the position he's working from, is that right now everybody's in darkness. So I've come into the world so that you won't remain in darkness any longer. And then he goes on to say that he is the Savior for those who will believe in him. He says in verse 47, if anyone hears my word and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus' whole mission was to set up your salvation. And by setting up your salvation to work through you in order for other people to come to faith in Christ. Because the gospel is for you, but it did not end with you. The mission of God was to come after you, but not just you. I mean, Jesus came to get me when I was a young boy, and my father and other Sunday school leaders and my mom and other people in my life were all being used as witnesses in my life in order for me to understand that Jesus wants to be my Savior. And what a tragedy it would be for any of us at the moment of our salvation that we said, well, I'm glad I got that. And then that was it. But instead, then he includes us into this force of light into the world so that we, we receive the light of the world and he, we are then given the Savior through our faith. And then it says there in verses 49 and 50, For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is 
eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus tells us that he is the greatest missionary that has ever lived, that he was sent by the Father. He sets for us this example of this missionary lifestyle that he says, I'm equal with the Father. I am the light of the world. I am the Savior for those who, have, who would believe, but I was willing to submit to the work of the Father. I was willing to submit to the sending by the Father into this world. And then we see time and time again how it is that Jesus calls us into this similar work. Jesus' ministry was about providing for salvation and drawing people to God. Uh, it, it was not about being divisive. It, it was not so that you would have to feel bad about yourself day in and day out, but it was so that you could be drawn out of the darkness and into the light. And rejecting His message and His work is a rejection of the truth that He spoke that was given to Him by the Father in heaven. It is a rejection of the very creator of the universe. These commands given by the Father, delivered by the Son, have the power of eternal life. And many of you have experienced that power in your own life. For some of you, it was recent. You can remember all the vivid details of a recent encounter that you had with Jesus where you surrendered your life and your heart and you put your faith in the resurrected Son of God for your own salvation. For others of you, it was many, many years ago, decades ago. It feels like uh, you know, a lifetime ago. Uh, maybe you feel like you're, you know, you're in your elderly years and it was something that happened when you were a young adult or a, or a teenager. And you have had this opportunity to walk with Jesus for all of these years, for these many, many years. And as we look around the field of our community, as we look up and down the hallways of the places where we live and where we work, when we think about the, the county in which we live, we think about the state of the world as it is, these are the great summaries of who we are and the great summary of who Jesus is. And, and we are the connecting bridge between those two. Uh, between who the world is and who we are, that there is this great unbelief that exists out there in the world, that they are not accepting of the message and of the work of God. But you and I can be the ones who are representative of our King, drawing people, persuading people, because He is the one who is equal to the Father, the light of the world, the Savior for those who will believe. He is the one sent by the Father who, is, who then, at the end of John, is going to say to the believers, as the Father has sent me, so now I'm sending you. Chapter 20, verse 21. This is what Jesus does. As I have been sent by the Father, now I'm sending you. And so the, the question that has to be laid bare in front of us today is twofold. One, what is going to be your response to the message and the work of Jesus? Will it be hard-heartedness because you love your sin, or will it be out of a great confession because you have understood and have seen the glory and the holiness of God? And so are you going to be like the crowd, ashamed to confess Jesus, or like Isaiah, that you are captivated by Jesus? The other side is for those of you who've already made that decision to cross over the threshold of faith, is what are we now going to do in the lives of the people that are around us? That as Jesus was sent by the Father, now He has sent us. And so who is it that He has sent you to? Who is your one? 
Who is that one local person that you are committing yourself to praying for regularly and passionately, looking for an opportunity to present to them the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that would bring salvation into their life? What is it that you're going to do in your life to invite people to your dinner table or to the coffee shop or into a, a close personal friendship so that you can invest in them so that they can see the grace of God at work in your life so that they might be hungry and persuaded that they also need it. Now, what is it that we're going to do uh, in response to Jesus, and what is it that we're going to do as, as carrying that response into the world? This morning, as we have our time of, uh, of, of singing, and maybe there is a, a decision that you need to make, it, it could be that you need to make that decision that you want to become a Christian, or maybe you've become a Christian, and you're like, I need a, a church family that I can call home for me, and you, you want to explore what does it look like to be a member of the church or to be baptized, or maybe there's just some need in your life that you just wish somebody would pray for you about, or you just want to come to the altar and, and just kneel and pray and just kind of get alone, kind of in a, just a, in a posture of humility before God to say, God, I'm, I'm willing for you to do whatever it is in my life that you need to do in my life. Uh, just, I, I'm ready. However it is that you think that you need to respond this morning, let me just encourage you to do that, to not waver and to not hesitate, but allow people to pray with you and to encourage you. In just a moment, as we sing together, there'll be a few of us that will be down front standing here, uh, staff of the church, that we'd love to pray with you. There are other people in, the, in, our, in our church family that if you need somebody to kind of have a long conversation with this morning that I can pair you up with where you can sit down with a mature believer that you can just work through some issues and some questions in your life. But however it is that it stands between you and Jesus this morning, love Him. Love Him more than your sin. Love Him more than the praise of men. Love Him more than anything else. Let's pray together.